Before I start what I'm going to preach on, uh, I just want to say how blessed I was by how you all stepped in and did uh, took roles on Friday at Brooks' funeral. Um, at the last minute, you you really show you showed Steve and Susie particularly what it looks like when people of faith love and support one another. Um, and I, I know it sounds really patronising, and perhaps I shouldn't be saying it, but I'm so proud of you all, of of how you've done that. It, it really, it really touched my heart and touched my spirit, and really, really encouraged me. So I know I'm getting a bit teary now, but I really, and and I know you've probably all sat there feeling a bit awkward and a little bit embarrassed, um, but and I don't want you to feel patronised about that. I just think you should be really proud of 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 how we. We've done. We don't always make the grade. We don't always live up to what Jesus wants us to do. But on Friday, I think you you particularly did it really really well. Um, so thank you for that. Right on to the message itself. And this morning we're still in a series that I've kind of called Grub Up, although I haven't actually used the expression very much. Um, and we're looking at meals and. The meal that we're looking at today is a Galilean breakfast. Uh, You will find the account at the end of John's Gospel in John chapter 21. And we have, I'm not going to read it because it's quite a long passage, um, but we have John recording the fact that that the disciples had gone back to Galilee and they'd they'd gone... um, back up there and they'd been fishing all night um, and they hadn't caught anything and um, Jesus stands on the shore and he calls out to them but they don't know that it's Jesus and Jesus says have you caught anything and they say no we haven't caught anything and, and he says well put the put the nets down on the other side um, and they put the nets down on the other side and they have this ma- this massive catch of fish. And Peter says, it's the Lord. And he jumps out of the boat and he runs there. And then they have this breakfast. Um, I do think it's interesting. I'm not sure if I've, got this, if I've got this written down. But I find it really, really interesting that Jesus already had the fish cooking. Yeah. They didn't need the fish. Yeah. Um, but I, I can't remember whether or not I'm going to pick up on that in my in my notes, actually, because I, the, the funeral's so so in my brain that... that I've forgotten. And then we have, um, at the end of John 21, we have this discussion or this this conversation between Jesus and between Peter. And um, Jesus, it's it's quite a um, well-known conversation where Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I love you. He says, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. And we've got that conversation as well. I'm going to look at that a little bit. Um, so, So that's the basic sequence of events there um, and had the disciples gone back to their fishing because everything had gone pear-shaped uh, that's the explanation I hear quite frequently put forward about this event you know we tend to go back to what we know when we're unsure about what the future holds we tend to go back to something that that um, that is comfortable for us something that we know um, and if they had returned to their old lives, it's not surprising that they were in Galilee because they were fishermen, or Peter at least, and, and James and John and Andrew were fishermen, and he knew his trade. Um, is it possible that he'd gone back to Galilee just because he didn't know what to, de- to do next? Because they were like regrouping, as it were. And I want to suggest that 
whilst it's one I've heard most commonly in sermons, I think there's another reason why they went back to Galilee. And I think we can find it at the end of Matthew 28, when the women at the tomb encounter the risen Christ. Um, and the, the, these women at the tomb, they, they go, they go to, the, to, to the tomb um, and they encounter um, this angel. And he says, don't be afraid for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen. And then he says, um, come see the place where he lay and then go quickly and tell his disciples. Um, it says he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee and he will see you there. Um, now I've told you, it says they hurried away from the tomb um, and yet filled with joy and they ran to the disciples. It says, suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. And they came to him and they clasped his feet and worshipped him. And he said this to them. He says, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So rather than going back, I believe the disciples were following Jesus's instructions. I'm sure that when they were in Galilee and they were waiting for Jesus, I, I'm sure they were thinking, oh, well, what are we going to do now? And Peter's like, well, I'm not waiting about on the shore here. I'm going fishing. I'm, I'm sure there was something of that in it. But I don't think they were in Galilee simply because they didn't know what to do. I think they were in Galilee because they'd been told to go to Galilee. Um, and I, I do actually recognise that there's a tension between that and Luke 24, 48. And that's one verse four, which says, stay in Jerusalem and wait, and then you'll be poked clever power. I do, do realise there's a tension between there, but not all going back is actually going back. If you're going back to something that you did before, if you're doing that because that's what Jesus has told you to do, you're not going back, you're going forward because you're still following Jesus. And I, interesting, it's just as on the way to Emmaus, Jesus is not immediately recognised in this account at the shore of Galilee. So they didn't, he was on the shore, but they didn't know it was him. And, and on the way to Emmaus, the, the, the two disciples didn't know it was Jesus. It was walking with them. Um, and, and the apostles um, don't recognise him, even when he suggests dropping the nets over the other side. It's only when the fish are caught that they say, it's the Lord. Um, and I've said this before, but I believe it's important to realise that it is, in, it is possible to have Jesus near you and even to meet with him and to not realise it's him. It is possible when we say God isn't answering my prayer or God isn't working in this situation or whatever it is, it is possible that he actually is, but you just haven't recognised it. But the first part of this account screams of another occasion when they're on the Sea in Galilee, doesn't it? That occurred at the start of Jesus' ministry. Another time when the disciples had been fishing all night with no results. And following Jesus' words resulted in a massive catch. You know, I don't think it's a coincidence that this happened. Um, comparing both events, the first event can be found in, in all four Gospels. In Matthew chapter 4, um, in Mark chapter 1, in Luke chapter 5 and in John chapter 1. And the second one we find here. And they're on the Sea of Galilee. And, and the similarities, they're both on the Sea of Galilee. Both accounts record an event that happens on the Sea of Galilee. Both events involve the disciples. Both events record... Peter responding in some way. Both events record a nil catch. And both events record Jesus suggesting, suggesting putting the nets down again. Both events record the apostles complying with what Jesus says and a massive catch of fish being caught. 
Both events record Peter recognising Jesus and, and responding to it. The first time he falls to his knees, the second time he jumps out the boat. So the response itself is different, but there is a response. And both events recognise an immediacy of the disciples. You know, the first event says that once they left their nets. And in this event, it says immediately Peter jumped out the boats. I don't believe actually that the, possible, that the disciples could have possibly missed the connections between this occasion and the first occasion. I really don't. Um, and the implications of it is that it's a restatement of their call. I don't believe that's a coincidence. I believe that was intentional, that Jesus is reminding them of his call to be fishers of men. So the first thing I want to put, put, pick up on this is this is a reminder of their calling. That first miraculous catch we read when Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And I think that is, I, I think, it seems to me that that is one of the foundational reasons why this happens here at the end, right at the end of John's Gospel. Do you know, frequently we forget our calling. Frequently we, we kind of get mired in, in the busyness of the day or in the busyness of our lives and suddenly we're in a place and we've forgotten what Jesus has called us to. And uh, in Revelation, we have um, the letters to the churches and then the letter to the Ephesians um, in Revelation chapter two, um, he he the 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 thing that John is is told to say is, I know your deeds, I know your hard work, I know your perseverance, I know that you can't tolerate wicked people, and that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false, and you have persevered, and you've enjoyed hardships for my name, and you've not grown weary. It's Ephesians two two one to seven. And, and it says, yet I hold this against you. What? You have forsaken your first love. Forget, consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from, from its place. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, uh, which I also hate. It says, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To the one who's victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. I believe one of the things that, that we can learn from this, um, from this account of Jesus with the disciples um, on the Sea of Galilee is we have to be really, really careful to guard the, the, the things that God has called us to and the things that he's called us to do and not lose the importance of the things that God's called us to in the busyness and the mess of our daily lives. The second thing is this, it's a parable of their mission. Uh, fishing's a parable, isn't it, for the mission of God, the disciples, the calling of the disciples, I'm calling you fishers of men. And it gives us clear images about what the mission of God is for the disciples. There aren't actually many analogies in the Bible about fish and, fish and fishing in, in, in that phase, except for in the call of the disciples. There aren't any gospel accounts, there aren't any prophetic words, there's no writings in the letters which call Christians generally fishers of men. And yet we can't get away from this because it is so significant. It's the first reference for, to the disciples, to Jesus, giving the disciples a commission to go and to gather people to God. And fishing, as the disciples knew it, is not the kind of fishing we see or we recognise today. If I talk about fishing nowadays in the UK, unless you're somewhere like Cornwall or Whitby or somewhere like that, if I talk about fishing, most people will think about Grumpy old man with a beard sat under an, under an umbrella with a rod and a line, dangling it in the water. Um, and, 
But, but that kind of fishing that, that the disciples do was very much more like the trawler fishing we see in the open seas. It was fishing with nets. But there are a couple of things that we can learn from fishing to, to help us in our evangelism. Firstly, is, is we need to know where the fish are. Whether it's with rod and line or with nets, you won't catch a fish if it's not there. And likewise, we can't hope to catch people for the, with the gospel or for the gospel if they're not there. We've got to go where the fish are. And what that looks like for us as Christians and for every Christian and for every church will look different for every one of us. It will depend on all sorts of factors, not least our, our calling, our gifts, our skills, our personality, our geographical location, our, the culture that we live in. All of these things will affect where we go to find the fish. And, and it will look different for me than it will for Joe. Or for, or, or for you, or, or for you. It, it, it will look different for each one of us. And what we cannot do is say, this is how I fish, and they're not fishing like I am, so they're not doing it properly. And the second thing we need to know is there will be times when we catch nothing, even though we're fishing. Um, I used to do a lot of fishing when I was a boy, um, in the days when, when there was a close season for fishing. Um, they did away with a close season, must be 20 years ago now or more. But the close season used to be 15th of March to the 16th of June. And the open day of the fishing season was the 16th of June, um, which incidentally happens to be my birthday. So my birthday every year when I was growing up through my teenage years was getting up at two in the morning, going down to Long Cross Ponds with my dad and my brother, setting up under torchlight, waiting for dawn to come and the guy in charge of the fishing club blowing a whistle so that we could all throw our, all, our, all our lines in it at, the, at, the, at dawn on, at the beginning of the day. Um, and I lost count of the number of days I fished all day and caught nothing. Whilst Jesus calls us to go, and we can expect some form of catch at times, but we have to be aware of judging people who don't get responses. Because the responses ain't our responsibility. Right. Our responsibility is to get out there and get fishing. Secondly, fishing is hard work, or it can be. Sometimes dangerous, particularly in trawlers and boats and stuff. And sometimes, with unsociable hours, it requires all sorts of sacrifices to make the best catch. Uh, Stuart, when his brother spent a year um, on a boat going out of Newlyn, um, and he had to get up early, he had to work hard all day and come home very late at night. It's not an easy job being a fisherman. Yeah. Fishing for men ain't an easy job either. Now, having said that, um, th th there's a couple of other things. We need to understand the fish. Your technique for fishing changes according to the fish you're trying to catch. I mean, even in, even in sea fishing, they have deep nets and they have, they have shallow nets and they have bottom nets and, and you know, and, and coarse fishing. It, you, you change your bait, you change your float, you change your line, you change your rod. You, it, it, it all depends on what fish you're trying to catch. You wouldn't fish for, and I'll use coarse fish because that's what I know. I wouldn't use the same method, tench fishing, as I would roach fishing. They live in different environments, they feed in different ways, and they find different food attractive. Do you know what people are like that? They live in different environments, and they, they, they feed in different ways, they have different questions, and you will use different techniques to catch different people for the gospel. A, a gospel message that would attract one person will repulse another. 
and we need to be aware of that as well. The key to catching fish is 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 knowing the fish you're trying to catch and targeting your fishing techniques to that. And fishing requires patience. You can spend hours and hours and hours on the water reading it, reading the water, reading the weather, finding the right spot, using the right bait. It isn't simply a question of just throwing a line in the water and pulling out a fish. Unless it's mackerel. You can put an empty hook on the water and pull a mackerel out, or you used to be able to. Or a feather. Yeah, or a feather. But we're called to be fishers of men as the disciples were. So let's take seriously this gift and this calling, but let's understand what I've just said. Let's make sure that we're fishing in the right place with the right technique, with the right baits, if you like, um, and, and, and know, know what, who we're catching in that sense. The next thing I want to pick up on this is it was a reminder of the source of their power for the disciples. They'd caught nothing and then Jesus says, cast the nets down on the other side of the boat and then they caught, caught it. And it was a reminder to them that, that he was the source of their power. You see, no matter, no, no matter how skillful we are, no matter how eloquent we are, no matter how, how brilliant we are at going out, no matter hip we are, skinny jeans, tattoos, beards, whatever it might be, Right? We won't catch anything without the right source of power. We need Jesus behind us. The disciples weren't, didn't, didn't change anything in their fishing methods to catch the fish. It was because they were doing what Jesus asked them to do and they were following his leading and he was the source of their power. Under the direction of Jesus, we can find a massive catch. Let's, let, let's remind ourselves that fishing for men on our own initiative is not a good idea. But fishing under the direction of Jesus can bring in a miraculous catch. And there are so many voices around us as to what constitutes real evangelism. And I'm using air quotes there. We have to be wise and realise that although it's important to make sure we're being culturally relevant and we're using the right techniques to catch the right fish, it isn't the technique ultimately that catches people. The only sure, far effective way to do evangelism is to do it with the inspiration, the guidance and the instruction of Jesus through his Holy Spirit. The largest and fastest growing churches worldwide are not in the Western world. They're not where they've got smoke machines and, and, and hip preachers and, and massive facilities and huge budgets and multi, massive multimedia ministries and all the rest of it. The, 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 the fastest growing church in the world today, I, I, I read last week or the week before, was in Iran. Used to be in China, but as I understand, it's now Iran is growing faster than. You know, when we uh, were uh, first kind of considering ministry and everything, and we George was trying to expose us to all sorts of ministries, we connected with um, Sam Yechnazar with Elam Bible College, the Persian Bible College in. And, and, and they were bringing people to, to South London, it was somewhere in South London, wasn't it? To, 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 to this Bible college, teaching them in Persian, translating the Bible into Persian, and then sending them back. And when they were going back, they said, we're going back, and we know we're almost certainly going to be martyred. At that time, there were only about 600 known Christians in Iran. And they didn't know how many Christians there were, an incredibly small church. And now the church in Iran, as I understand it, it, it runs to millions and they don't have programs. They don't have massive churches with multimedia and smoke machines. They have Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and witness, and courage. 
Now, the disciples in Acts 4, when they were um, whipped and sent back, and, and it said they prayed to the Lord, and Lord, and they, this is their prayer. It says, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And let's not forget the result of that prayer. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Our success and our failure is not predicated on our technique, but on the Holy Spirit and his work. It's, uh, Paul said, doesn't he, in Corinthians, he says, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but they were with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on the Spirit's power. Let's never forget that. And then we move into this, this time of recommissioning with Peter. And I, sometimes I think Peter gets a bit of, a bit of a short stick here, a bit of blunt, the, sharp, the short end of the stick here, because I don't believe Peter was the only one to run away that night. I think they all ran away. And I would also hazard a guess that he wasn't the only one to deny knowing Jesus either. I know, obviously, the Bible's silent on that because the Bible only records Jesus doing it. So it's, that's merely speculation on my part. It's not biblical in that sense. But Peter is unique, isn't he? His denial was predicted by the Lord, and I think that's why it was recorded. And his reinstatement. He's the only one who's reinstated, that that we can see being reinstated. When Jesus says, take care of or feed my lambs or my sheep. You cannot notice, fail to notice, there are three denials by Jesus and three declarations of love by Peter. You can't miss that parallel. And a pastoral imperative, I would suggest, is that Given that we look at the Great Commission as being very much about presentation and reaching the world, I think it's very interesting to to see what Peter's recommissioning was for. It was for pastoral care. I've talked a lot about evangelism, but actually embedded in this story, we've got evangelism and pastoral care. And I think they go hand in hand. I think it's really, really important to get decent pastoral care. Evangelism, pure evangelism, without providing some form of post-conversion, pastoral care and discipleship is at best ill-advised. I think I'd go so far as to suggest sometimes it can be reckless. People who, who, who come to faith... Um, must be cared for after they've come to faith they must be discipled you know the great commission going to um matthew's uh, matthew 28 19 going to all the world and make disciples of all nations disciples that's the pastor's calling and and the, the gift and the role of the pastor and the gift and the role of the evangelists work together pastors don't have anyone to pastor if the evangelism don't work but if all, evangelist, if all you've got is, is a church that's run by evangelists, it's very, very shallow and, and it's got very big back doors. Could people leave it because they're not being fed and pastored and discipled? You need both. Every church needs both. Um, we, we, we need, we, we need pe- people to, 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 to gather and people to grow. We need a gathering ministry and we need a growing ministry. And the parable of the sower is relevant here. Jesus tells us that some fruit won't last, but some who are converted will and will bear fruit. It is possible to convert thousands and have no lasting fruit. 
but Jesus talks about having fruit that will last. And one of the criticisms that was levelled at Billy Graham was that evangelists, evangelists like him, they breeze in and they do their great big like campaigns and tens or hundreds of thousands of people become Christians and then five years later none of them are in church. And the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, certainly in Mission England in the 1980s, made a real, a real point of, of introduce, getting the churches to set up house groups. They called them nurture groups, if I remember rightly, um, follow-up groups so that people didn't leave. And, you know, Wendy and I are, um, for different reasons, we went forward at Billy Graham, but we're actually, uh, our, our marriage and our relationship and, and our ministry together is born in one of those nurture groups because that's where I met Wendy in one of those nurture groups. It's it's where we fell in love. I think I fell in love before she did. Um, but, you know, we met and we married. And, and so Billy, if you want to blame anyone for me and Wendy being here, blame Billy Graham. But your journey with Jesus doesn't finish when you become a Christian. Conversion isn't the end of a road, it's the beginning of one. And there are many passages which say this or something like it. We need to be sure we grow and become mature in our faith. And we've got to be sure as a church, we don't just proclaim the gospel, but we have a a duty to discipleship. We have a duty to disciple one another. And it's, it's like a process through which we become conformed to the pattern of Jesus conform to the image of her son. Our mission such as it is must not stop at the door of the evangelistic service. It has to follow through into a church which provides love, care, support for converts to grow and to become mature believers who will themselves bear fruit. And then lastly, the point uh, which always strikes me whenever I read this, this account is, um, and I've, ta- I've talked about it before, is you find it in John 21, 20 to 22, where Peter, he looks and it says, he sees the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. Now that's John's way of describing himself in his gospel. And it says, this was the one who leaned back against Jesus at supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? And Jesus said, if I wanted to remain alive till I return, what's that to you? You must follow me. Even after his encounter with Jesus, even after he's received love and compassion from his saviour, Peter looks about him and he sees the disciple Jesus loved and he can't stop himself saying, what about him? How often is it that even when things are going well or even when we're being blessed, we can't resist having a gander about at other people, looking at other people around us and seeing where do we fit in in the pecking order? The problem is this. Comparison, I think, always leads to pride in the sense that it takes our, our eyes off of God and puts them on ourselves. There's one side of comparison when we compare ourselves to other people and we think we're doing better than them. And there's the other side of comparison is when we look at other people and we think they're doing better than us. Either way, the focus is on us. And it's not where it should be, on God. God doesn't want us to compare ourselves with people. You, If you live a life... That is filled with comparison with other people. You are destined to live a life of dissatisfaction. Matthew 20, Jesus tells a parable about workers in a vineyard who are tired at various points throughout the day. And at the end of the day, there's a grumbling because there's been a comparison and they're grumbling. And the, and the master said, Can't, aren't, I don't have the right to do what's right with my own money. Didn't you agree? 
and and it, when he teaches is 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 on the on the gifts of the spirit and and on the body, Paul uses a symbolize symbol of, uh, symbolism of a body, doesn't he? In Corinthians, and he and he says this. He says no part of the body should compare itself with another part of the body. He says he says because I'm not hands, it doesn't mean I don't belong to the body. He said, and, and if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, would it for that reason stop being part of the body? It's as if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? He says, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Um, and he says, he says the, ha- the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. So, so it, it's like one part of the body saying, oh, well, I'm not really part of the body because I'm not an eye. And another part of the body saying, oh, well, you're not part of the body because you're not like me. And both of those are wrong. And Paul tells us wisdom isn't found in comparison. In, in comparison. He says, we don't dare to classify or compare ourselves with someone who's, who's, who's commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they're not wise. That's in uh, 2 Corinthians 10. Job talks about resentment, which comes out of comparison. And Job says, surely resentment destroys the fool and jealousy kills the stupid. And we've got the the Pharisee and the tax collector, the parable that Jesus talks. And he says that one of them is looking and saying, God, aren't I wonderful? Look at me. I'm so much better than that person there. And then we've got and then we've got the, the sinner standing there, beating his breast, don't even look about him and says, God, um, have mercy on me. And Jesus said, guess which one went away? Justified. The problem with comparison is it tempts us to take our eyes off the prize. Our calling is not to compare ourselves with other people, either individually or as a church. Um, we don't compare the seed with other churches. We are the seed. We're the, we're the church God's called us to be and we've got to be the best seed that God's called us to be. And we don't need to worry about other churches either in this area or in this nation let's just be the best we can be here there are several reasons why comparison isn't good firstly it can make us feel inadequate you know if you if you ever feel like you just don't make you just you just you'll understand even in churches people will say and believe such things like well i'm not as good a musician as so and so i'm not as good a preacher as so and so or i can't pray quite as well as so and so does my observation is that most of the people i know in churches have absolutely no idea the difference they make in their churches they really don't understand how important they are they've got no idea what their value is to the church or to god there are no mistakes in life every single one of us has unique and unparalleled value there is no one in the universe who has your unique blend of personality experience gifts talent no one is like you not a single person not in history you are unique and god made you that way because you have something unique to bring to the church the other thing that comparison can do is can make us boastful that's the opposite end of the opposite side of that coin it can lead us to a belief that our own righteousness has a bearing that 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 that, that pharisee um, the world does this. I'm not as bad as Adolf Hitler or Donald Trump or Justin Trudeau or or Boris Johnson or whoever it might be. I'm, and and the, the person that you put in that the person whose name you put there to, says more about you than it does about them. Actually, 
Um, but if anyone that you put in there, if you say, I'm not as bad as so-and-so, whoever that so-and-so is, is wrong. Because it, it leads us to this place where we think that somehow our righteousness has a bearing on whether or not we can be accepted by God. And it can fuel division. It's one of the things that fuels more division than anything else is people comparing themselves. I'm better than you. I'm worse than you. I'm better. And, and me comparing myself with you creates a barrier between me and you. And rather than preferring you, which is what the Bible calls us to do, when I'm comparing myself with you, I'm judging you in a sense, which we're called not to do. We damage fellowship in the body of Christ when we compare. So what kind of responses should we be doing for today? And, you know, I think some of, if not all of us, get to the place sometimes where we feel that somehow we need to have a new touch from God. Um, I mean, something that I've said this morning might perhaps have, have, have touched you in some way. You know, nothing ever works for me. No matter how I try, what I try, it never seems like it works. I feel like I'm banging my head against a brick wall. You know, like the disciples after that night's fishing, everything has gone pear-shaped. It's all gone to pot. I've got nothing in my net and there's just feels like nothing's working out for me. Or I've blown it. You know, like Peter... I'm painfully aware of that time that I came up short. I'm aware of that time I did something and I, and, 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 and I didn't honour God and I let myself down and I let my faith down. My mistake, my failure, whatever it was, somehow disqualifies me from moving on in the church. Or I've fallen in the, in the compar- into the comparison trap. I'm looking at these people around me and, and, and I see nothing but people who are better and more gifted than I am. And as a result, I've bought into the lie that I'm no real use in the church. Or I know he loves me, but I just don't have anything to give. And that's where we come to the fish. The disciples away from the straw, they, they drag their nets in absolutely full of fish. And what do they find? They find Jesus already had fish. He's got no need of the fish they've brought in, and yet he says to them, bring some of the fish with you. We might have missed the mark. We might have blown it. We might, God might, might not actually need the things we bring to the table, but he calls us to bring it anyway. He chooses to use what we have to give him. And I believe for us that the little that we have as a church, we don't have a lot. We're, we're, we're what I would call a micro church. I'm not even sure we're a small church anymore. I think we've become a micro church. I think the micro church is the way forward for the world, actually. Um, So we're pioneers. Um, But we don't have the resources that some of the bigger churches around and about us have. We don't have the buildings and the PA systems and the, and the smoke machines and the four pastors being paid full time and the, uh, you know, and the, and the worship teams, you know, eight worship teams and, and all this. We don't have all of those resources. We don't have um, loads and loads of rooms for doing children's work and, and loads of facilities that we can use. You know, we're rattling about in a hall um, and, and, and sometimes if you look at what we've got, you know, I've, you know I, I do, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry for this, but sometimes I think, I haven't got anything for you, Lord. We haven't got anything here. What are we doing here? But I can't get out of my gut this sense that God wants us to carry on. 
And I believe that we need to say to the Lord, Lord, we're bringing the fish that we have, we're going to bring to you. What we've got is yours, Lord. Take it and use it. And we trust you for that miraculous catch that Jesus twice gave to the disciples. I just encourage you and ask you, will you join me with that, with us, with us just bringing the little that we have, the five loaves and the two fishes, the widows might, whatever it might be. And, and, and let's join and be a church that gives God everything we've got, little though it is, and trusts him for the result and see him work powerfully in us and through us for his glory and for his kingdom.